0: Amen. Remain standing and hear the words of our God. From Hebrews chapter 13, I'll be reading verse 4. These are the words of God. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. These are the words of God. Let's ask His blessing now. Heavenly Father, our disobedient culture hates what you love, loves what you hate. And we have established um, our own definitions of what you have given us, the wonderful institution of marriage, twisting it in so many ways. Help us put aside the lies and grasp the truth of what marriage is, how we are to obey you in it. If it is to be honored, then Lord, teach us to do so. Bless the preaching of your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as Jeff said in the... establishment of male and female man being made in God's image we have certainly destroyed and twisted that in every possible way this verse verse 13 in the book of Hebrews um, verse 4 in in the in the 13th chapter I'm sorry is so straightforward it it, it should be able to be uh, spoken and without it really any explanation everybody knows what we're talking about marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let's close in prayer. But I think you could preach an entire message on it, so I'm going to give it a try. We're going to we're gonna leave uh, the Gospel of John for just a few weeks and do a short series now on marriage. We want to do so for a number of different reasons, and one of them is just because it's good for God's people, for Christians, to hear about Uh, and understand and, and pray for the revival and renewal of a culture that honors marriage in the right way, including you honoring your marriage in the right way, and including you honoring marriage if you aren't married in the right way. There are applications for everyone from this verse. The biblical case for marriage also needs to be preached because Christ needs to be preached. The biblical, biblical account of marriage needs to be preached because Christ needs to be preached, and Christ is preached when we declare the biblical covenant of marriage. More importantly, Christ is preached when we live it out. Christ is preached when we live out the truth that the uh, relationship of a husband and wife declares the relationship of Christ and his church. It declares what Christ did for his bride, and it, re- and it preaches how the bride is to respond to Christ. Paul could not speak about marriage without seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he could not speak about the gospel of Jesus without seeing a marriage. Listen to him at the end of chapter 5 in Ephesians, where he says he's, he's talking about the different roles of wives and husbands, and, and kind of, again, if you, if you go there, you, that's all straightforward in terms of what he's saying. Uh, We've twisted all of it as well, but it's straightforward in the reading. But as he's describing this relationship of a husband to his wife and caring for and loving his own body, he almost changes the theme. He almost changes the topic. He's he's talking about how a husband loving his wife is loving his own body. And he says in verse 29 of chapter 5, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church just as the Lord does the church. And then he says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Quoting then Genesis, he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Then he says, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking about marriage. No, he doesn't say that next. He says, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Uh, nevertheless, he says. Nevertheless, uh, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul can't talk about marriage without having to all of a sudden talk about Jesus and the church. He can't, he can't talk about the gospel without all of a sudden having to talk about a man and a woman and how, how we should live as husband and wives. He sees the two so interconnected, and, the, and I think the scriptures teach that. And, and this is what's so important: our marriages preach the gospel. The the way that you live with your wife preaches how Christ loves the church. The way that you live with your husband preaches how the church is to respond to Christ. Now now it's, it's not like you get to choose. You do not get to choose whether or not your marriage is going to preach that. It will preach that. It's just whether or not it's going to preach it truly or falsely. It's just whether it's going to preach it in such a way that it honors the glorious truth of the gospel or it dishonors it. And Matthew, or I'm sorry, Hebrews thirteen four says that marriage is honorable. The preaching of the gospel is honorable. That the two go together. You see, the church, the church must understand itself as the church, all of us. The church must understand itself as the church, and in, in, the, in the point of being the corporate church, we have to understand the importance of the institution of marriage, and we must preach the glorious mystery that is marriage because the church is herself a bride. In fact, she is the bride. She is the bride. The church is the bride by which all other brides are to see that they are imitating that they are that they are uh, somehow mirroring reflecting in some way we're not all you're not all those brides out there you're not all brides and you're kind of helping to determine what the bride of Christ is going to look like the bride of Christ is determining declaring and and uh, and showing defining who you are in that role of wife the book of Revelation, at the end of the the, uh, book of Revelation, when this perfected bride is brought down, John writes, then one of the seven angels came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife, the wife of the Lord Jesus. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So the theology of marriage is critically, is critically essential because the gospel message itself is at stake. Mess around with marriage and you're messing with the gospel. Mess with the gospel and you're messing with what marriage is supposed to be. The two go hand in hand. The success or failure of a culture is at stake. The success and failure of a culture is at stake with regard to how that culture defines, and lives out, protects, and forces marriage. And I want to show you how important that is, and then how important it is for us to understand it culturally, and, of course, in our own lives. So, the state of marriage, of course, in these modern days, is in shambles. We have lost the battle for the dictionary Who knows what marriage is? Define marriage now. As a culture, try to define what a marriage is or what the terms are for a marriage. Terms? Rules? Marriage? What is this thing, this funny thing called marriage? We don't know anymore. Churches also do not teach the biblical theology and sociology of marriage. They're afraid to. They're afraid of being charged with hate speech. They're afraid of being charged of being part of the toxic patriarchy. They're afraid of, of all kinds of attacks from the culture around them. And so we don't preach, we don't teach a biblical theology and a biblical sociology of marriage. What marriage is producing in the world. What God's purpose is for marriage, your marriage, for the rest of the world. Instead, we want to talk about marriage. It's like, we're going to have a marriage conference so you can find out how to have a much more fulfilling marriage. Because isn't that what marriage is about? Me being fulfilled? Marriage is all about me, right? I mean, I got married for me, so I feel better. Because I, I, want, I, want big thing, I want really good things for me. That's what marriage is for. It's for me, right? So give me a conference on seven ways to improve my marriage so that I can be more happy, right? And that's about as deep as we get in our modern church world with regard to talking about what is the importance and the centrality of marriage. But marriage is far more powerful than that. It's far more powerful than that, and that's why when you mess with marriage, you ruin lives. When you mess with marriage in terms of what you teach and what you live out, you mess with that, you ruin a culture. You ruin an entire culture. So... Young Christians instead, and this is, this is um, horribly true, um, both statistically and anecdotally, I hear about this and, and read about this all the time. Christians, young Christian men and women today, do not understand why they cannot cohabit before marriage, read friends with Pri- privileges, nor why there is such a fuss today being made about two men in love with one another. Why can't they just go off and do whatever they want? Our, 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 young, our, our, our young generation of new, uh, the next generation of Christians growing up are having a hard time defining or defending an, an, an orthodox, standard, traditional, biblical understanding of why you can't sleep with somebody before you get married. Or why we should worry about what other people are doing or how they're defining marriage. Why should we care about this? How is that central to the gospel? I mean, come on. And our, and our culture is being completely destroyed in the midst of it. What has a low, secular, and social Darwinist view of marriage brought our culture? Before I even answer that, I want to define the question. What has a low, secular, and social Darwinist view of marriage brought our culture? When, when we understand that we are just material beings being morphed and formed as we desire to, and, and as, we, as we impose a social Darwinist view upon our culture, which means that I can evolve, we can evolve, we can make ourselves better, however we want to define better. We get to choose our own standards and then press a culture into it. So what have we gotten for it? What do we have for that kind of an understanding of what it means to be male and female? What it means to be husband and wife? What it means to have a marriage? Well, we've got easy, no-fault divorce, Laws, we have high divorce rates. We have fatherlessness, STDs, out-of-wedlock pregnancies, the murder of unborn children, single moms in poverty, lower and lower birth rates, infertility, the murder, a culture of date rape, open and accepted pornography, the abuse and tra- trafficking of women and children that makes most of that pornography, and all in the name of getting God and your morals out of my bedroom. Get God and your morals out of my bedroom. I want a secular view of marriage and sexuality. I do not want you imposing, the culture says, I do not want you imposing anything that your God, who you think your God is, upon the rest of culture. What's the fruit of that? The destruction the destruction of a culture and, and the horrible mistreatment of women, all in the midst of it when we're calling, we're calling for egalitarianism and feminism and, and, the, and the rise of powerful women, and we're destroying them. We're destroying families, we're killing children at numbers we can't even count today. There's a simple answer marriage is honorable. Marriage is honorable. Marriage is honorable among all. Marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And here we are. You see? You see where we are? So, it's so bad, isn't it? It's so good. The opportunity is so good. Repent and believe in the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of marriage and the social work of what a marriage is for. And you will preach, we will preach, and live out a gospel of salvation, a gospel of fruitful multiplication, dominion, and blessing. Because that's the power of biblical marriage. That's why it's worth Christians who already understand the doctrine of marriage. It's a good thing to go back and review. It's a good thing to sit again, yourself, you and your spouse. Or if you're single, you're not married right now, to consider what is marriage? What is, what is a biblical view? What's it all about? Why is it, what, what is this? How, is that, how does that affect me and my culture around me? So, we've been given this answer, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is preached and pictured in God's institution of marriage. So, marriage is honorable, God says in his word. Marriage is honorable because because it's God's, God's design, and because its chief end is to glorify God. Its chief end is to give all glory to God, And it is his design. He defines it. It's his institution. It's not something that uh, in the cultural milieu, somewhere down in the dark ages, we came up with this idea, or we all evolved into this in some kind of way. No, God instituted it in the very beginning as he created man, male and female in his own image. God's command from the beginning was for man to subdue the earth and to fill it Genesis 1, 28, and it was his desire to use the institution of marriage and family as the means for this to take place. He decreed that man's solitude was not good and set out to rectify this in Genesis two eighteen. So there's so much to, to consider about that. When God says it's not good for man to be alone, what, one of the things, he's, he's, not just, he's not just saying it's good for a man to get married. What he's saying is we are social creatures and that we are to establish a society. We're not supposed to be alone. In order to accomplish what God has has called us to do, we must form together in some kind of a, a society. Otherwise, there's no way to obey God and actually take dominion and subdue all the earth because there's way too many skills necessary in order to do that. One man's never going to be able to have all those skills. And he's not going to be able to be all over the earth. And he certainly is not going to be able to fill it. So yes, he needs a wife, but he and his wife need an entire culture, a society. And marriage becomes the building block of that society. A family becomes the building block of all societies. Get healthy building blocks, and you end up with a a, a strong and fruitful society. Have ill-defined, fornicating, uh, bitter building blocks. And it's like the old saying, you you can't make a good omelet with rotten eggs. It's just not possible. (laughs) We need good eggs. Well, so he he says in man's solitude that it was not good for him to be alone, and he's shown that none of the animals qualified as he begins naming them, because this helper, it says, must be of the same essence, a fellow human being made in God's image. In order for marriage to take place, God decided to divide into two. He takes Adam and basically divides him into two in order to make two so he could bring them together to be one. Another way of looking at it is he he takes Adam and he puts him into a deep sleep, almost a death-like place, takes out from his side a woman, or takes out from his side a rib, fashions it into a woman, and in a resurrection awakening, new life and glory is brought to the man. See, the gospel's even there. The Gospels, even there in the story of the death and resurrection of Adam. Marriage and the families they create then are God's building blocks for society and culture. So marriage is a public declaration. It's not a private ceremony because it is for society and the glory of God. It's not just for you. You don't run off and get married privately because you know, it doesn't really have anything to do with anybody else. It has everything to do with everyone else. You are establishing personal... And property rights as a couple, as a family, to be used in that society to do what you believe the society has been called to do. For Christians, we've been called as a society to take dominion of the world, to preach the gospel everywhere, to build a kingdom of hope and joy and, and pleasure and forgiveness with all the stuff that God has given us in this world to do and to use. And this is why marriage is honorable among all. Jump on, up and down on that because I just don't want you to think that if you're not married right now, that this message isn't for you. It's so much for all of us. It's so much for the world. Marriage is honorable among all, the married and the unmarried. Um, therefore, the institution of marriage must be kept in culture according to God's plan. You see, we wouldn't have all these lists, that long, long list of things that I, that I uh, gave, gave out, uh, uh, high divorce rates, fatherlessness, STDs, murder of unborn children, if people, among all, believed that marriage was honorable, that all the activities of intimacy are only to take place in that honorable institution where vows have been given that are promising protection and life, and life to one another, there's blessing upon a culture that does this, and there are curses upon cultures that do not. And this is because a marriage is a covenant, and covenants are dangerous things. Covenants are dangerous things, and in this whole world, all of our world, we deal with covenants, the covenants that God has made with creation, with us through Christ. Covenants are everywhere. What, what is a covenant? Well, a useful definition is that a covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. So you take a look at the covenant that God made with Abraham, or the covenant that God made with Moses, the the covenant that, that God makes through Jesus Christ to us, and you see that he is determining, he is solemnly and sovereignly administering a relationship that is going to exist between him and the other in the covenant, and obedience to the terms of that covenant brings forth blessings, and disobedience in terms of that covenant brings forth curses. This is why covenants are so powerful and dangerous. And this is the way in which God always deals with man. This is what happens with Adam, the first Adam. All men, all of us were in Adam, represented by him as our covenant head. Um, He was in covenant with God. So in Genesis 2, um, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You hear the terms of the covenant and you hear the promises of blessing and of curses depending on whether or not you are obeying, doing what God says in the covenant or disobeying, not doing what God says in that covenant. Now, Adam stands there as the head of the whole human race. The whole human race is there as Adam stands there. Later, as Adam and Eve together, they're the entire society of the human race. And Adam, as that covenant head, represents all of us and represented all of us well. So that Hosea, um, centuries later, Hosea would talk about how all of us, just like Adam, this is in Hosea 6-7, but like Adam... They, all of Israel at that time, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. So when we, when we, uh, when when Adam sins by taking of of the fruit and eating it, as our representative head, he is dealing treacherously with God. He is is, uh, saying, God is not God, I'm going to be God. And God brings much curse because of that. We're taught that in in Adam's sin, all of us sinned. Uh, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. We all are sinners by nature. We all follow our our head, Adam. By falling into, uh, already, we're already fallen in sin, but we show forth in our own lives that Adam did a great job of representing us there in the garden, because we all sin as well. First Corinthians 15:22 says, "As for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive." The reason that Adam and Christ are set in uh, set next to each other is because they're both our covenant heads. Either you are in covenant. With through Adam with God, or you're in covenant through Christ with God. They are the two Adams. They are the two covenant heads. They're the only two races. They're the only two people groups, actually, in the eyes of God over all of the earth. You're either in the first Adam by birth, or you're in the second Adam by your second birth. And there's, there, there, in terms of covenantal gatherings before God, there isn't another option. That's it. Christ is related to Adam in that he, too, is a representative head on behalf of his people. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, The first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The work of the first Adam brought condemnation upon all those who were in him, and the work of the second Adam brought justification upon all those who were in him. That's that's laid out in in great detail in Romans chapter 5. But again, the idea is, in the first Adam, all of us fall into sin and judgment. In the second Adam, we receive the justification of Jesus Christ, and, and, and I don't know if you ever wonder about that, but why, why should I have received the justification for Christ? Why did his death do anything for my sin? Well, it's because he represented me. He was my substitute, He was, and uh, by a substitute... Um, It can be said this way, by substitute, we don't mean that like uh, a teacher was sick and so a substitute came in that day for that teacher. Um, It's not just an in and out kind of thing. What it means is more like a congressman. We send a congressman to to Washington, D.C. to represent us as our substitute. We're not there. He's there for us as our representative head. Christ is our representative covenant head, our federal head in that kind of way. And that's why that's why his blood washes away your sin. That's why God's wrath poured upon him is God's wrath poured upon you, representatively. And that's why you are justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all because of covenant. It's all because of federal headship that has to be understood. It's only through our covenantal relationship with Christ that our sins can be imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to us. And you want to say, yeah, Dave, but why are we, I thought we were having a sermon here on marriage. Yes, we are. What does this have to do with marriage? It has everything to do with marriage. It has everything to do with marriage because marriage is a covenant, Marriage is a covenant that God has created for a man and a woman to have together before him, solemnly administered or um, sovereignly administered by God in publicly before all people with attendant blessings and curses. And of course, we know this both from the scriptures because we see the picture of the bride, the church being called a bride of Christ. And also there are explicit references as well to the covenant of marriage. So the church, those who are in the second Adam, is the the church by God's covenant promises. I will dwell with them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You hear relationship there, right? You hear um, intimate relationship. You hear companionship between God and his people. I will be their God and they will be my people. The church is, as I mentioned, compared to a bride betrothed and brought to her husband Christ. Paul will even write to to the church at Corinth, and he'll say, "I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ." He's not talking to a woman; he's talking to the church. He says, "I." It says, like a father or a, a shoshbin, a, a a man who was responsible for bringing um, a, a Jewish bride to the, to her husband. He says, I, "I'm jealous for you with a godly je- jealousy because I want to. I want to. i betrothed you. i promised you to Christ, and I got to make sure you get there as a chaste virgin." So he tells the church to clean up its act because you're a bride, church. You're a bride, and you need to be spotless and blameless as you're brought before Jesus at that final wedding ceremony. Well, as, as as I mentioned in the introduction, Paul declares this comparison in the relationship of husband and wife to the church in Christ. He instructs us that the paradigm of Genesis 2 is a picture to us of Christ and the church. And then there's, I mentioned, there's two explicit references to the covenant of marriage as well. In Proverbs chapter 2, in speaking to the adulteress, um, she is one who, in 2.17, it says, forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. The covenant established with her husband is a covenant that she is breaking when she acts as the adulteress. Malachi 2.14 says, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. She's your wife by covenant. And so if we, don't, if we do not understand our marriages covenantally, then, uh, then uh, it, it really becomes ugly, actually. If we don't understand marriage covenantally, then it really becomes ugly. We begin treating the roles of husband and wife as two individuals with one who is apparently in charge to break the tie. That would be the best definition that you could come out of, get out of the Bible um, in terms of what a husband and wife's role is if you don't understand covenant. You just have two people who are living together, He's bigger and stronger, so of course he gets his way. That's not not how it works. Rather than as an organic union, being torn apart to be brought back together in, in uh, in one flesh. Without a covenant, we're left with an individual man in charge of an individual woman, rather than a man having representative authority and responsibility over their one flesh union. Just a side note. This is why, in a in a marriage, in a Christian marriage, a woman takes her husband's last name. It's, it's not because she's lost her identity; it's because they have become one flesh. And as one flesh, he that that uh, I I go before God and I confess my sins, Dave's sins. I don't go before God and confess Kim's sins. In the same way, but I do go before God and confess the hatcher's sins. As the covenant head, I'm responsible before God for all of the sins of my family. I go to God and talk to God about the state of my family, taking full responsibility, even if I'm not to blame for the sins. Just for instance, if Kim happened to sin, i I'm not sure when the last happened. yeah, a long time ago. But just say, for instance, she did, then, uh, then I would be, before God, I would be res- representing the Hatchers with regard to all of us. And Kim would not do that. The wife doesn't do that. She's responsible for her own sins, one-to-one, before God, as a daughter, in, uh, daughter before the father. But as a couple, as a family, the husband takes full responsibility before God for the state of his family. Because that's what Adam was doing. Because that's what Christ is doing. You see? Christ, Christ, why, is, why is Christ crucifying the cross? He didn't sin, but he became sin for us. Now, we don't become substitutionary atonements for our families. We, we, we're not replacing Christ, but we imitate Christ in taking that kind of responsibility. That's why you've got to understand what covenant is. So marriage is not a picture of boss and slave but of head and body. And I hope you see the difference there. I hope, it is, I hope it's well understood the difference there because, like I said, we have the opportunity through faithful Christian marriages and faithful Christian families with the, blessing, the covenant blessings upon us to us and to our children, our children's children, to bring the gospel in, 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 in an incarnate way to the rest of the world around us. We ought, to be, we ought to be the kind of people, and, and by the blessings of God... Well, again, let me stop here for just a moment and just give a, a tad of personal testimony. Um, Kim and I just celebrated our 39th wedding anniversary, and we have a wonderful marriage. And, and we have it all because of the grace of God. And part of the grace of God was giving us teachers who told us this stuff a long, long time ago. Some of it before we were even married. So there's so much that we didn't have to unlearn by the grace of God. Now, wherever you are, and and we're somewhere, we're somewhere, trust me, I prepare a message like this, and spend time on my knees before God confessing my sin and lack of of doing and putting in place what I'm I'm about to preach. It's because we don't have it all together. And neither do you. And wherever you are, I'm speaking to married here, married first of all, wherever you are, you should hear this message. You should understand. You should have a sense of, oh my goodness. So I'm in a covenant. This is different than the way I was thinking. I'm doing this to the, all for the glory of God. It's not about me. Uh, this is a different way of thinking. God has purposes, eternal purposes, th- through our marriage to the rest of the world for generations and generations. I better take this seriously. I better take this far more seriously than I am. What does God have to say to me? Because you are either going to be a part of building or wrecking a culture. That's it. That's what marriages do. They either build a culture or they wreck a culture. It's not just they they build a marriage or they wreck a marriage. This affects the whole culture all around us. That's why it's so... Can you tell I think it's important? Sorry. Take a deep breath, Dave. So, a study of Scripture shows what God intends to provide through this covenant of marriage point of marriage, well, chief end of man, Westminster Shorter Catechism, chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, if that's true, then the chief end of everything we do is to glorify God in whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name and and all to the glory of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Everything we do is to the glory of God. So what is the chief end of your marriage? To glorify God and enjoy him, enjoy God forever, through and in marriage and family relationships. But what is marriage for? How is it, what, is, what, is, what causes it to be a glory to God, and what causes it to be of such enjoyment for us with God? Well, the scriptures give us this idea of companionship and sexual intimacy and fidelity and the, the filling of the earth or the uh, procreation of children. This is the purposes of marriage that glorify God. Let's look at each one of them quickly. First of all, is companionship. I, I mentioned Proverbs 2.17 and 2.14 and showed you how they both, defi- or both explicitly noted that marriage is a covenant, but they also both, in the English Bibles, use the word companionship. You are my companion. But they're two different words. They're two different Hebrew words, both translated their companion. The two Hebrew words point to, one one word, to an intimate relationship with, and the other to be united to. Together they speak of commitment and intimacy. The commitment and the intimacy necessary to bring together the one flesh promise of marriage. Because marriage is a covenant and in that covenant is a sexual union protected by the, bounds, the boundaries of that covenant to the glory of God and to the pleasure of that, um, of, of that married couple. So another way to look at it is that the commitment, the covenant, brings about the intimacy, the companionship. The commitment is what? This is why, this is why when a couple takes vows, they vow to provide companionship for one another, Promise to love you. And they promise to love in sickness and in hell, for better, for worse, right? All those. Why? What's going on there? The, The vow is a promise to give yourself away as companion, regardless of the state of things, each and every day. If it's a good day, I give myself to you as companion. If it's a bad day, I give myself to you as companion. I'm making that vow before God that that is the way that I'm going to live. And so we we make this commitment to be a companion for one another for the rest of our lives, regardless of the circumstances of life. We do not take vows to receive companionship. (laughs) I vow before you that I promise to receive all of the love and good gifts that you're going to give me for the rest of my life. Yippee! (laughs) We live in a day when people write their own vows. Probably someone has said something, written, written something like that. But that's, that's not a Christian marriage. Christian marriage, when Jesus doesn't make a vow to the bride, well, if you'll choose me, then I'll choose you. <laughs> well, if, you, if you'll really clean up your act, then I will come and love you. <laughs> if you come and please me, I'll think about saving you. Aren't you glad that's not the gospel? of the Lord Jesus Christ. But husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church with a vow of giving regardless, a vow of sacrifice regardless, a vow, and we'll we'll talk about this more um, as we talk about the roles of husbands and wives in the next coming weeks. So each vows to give all that is necessary to meet his or her spouse's need for companionship whether or not he or she will ever receive the same in return. This is what Christ did for his bride. As an act of love, marriage vows commit one to giving, not to receiving. We don't need vows to receive (laughs) good gifts. We just take them, right? (laughs) The second second reason for um, marriage, and the reason that the marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled is because marriage is the place and the only place for sexual intimacy. And again, the, the covenant is... Here's another example of how powerful and dangerous covenant is. Sexual intimacy is, is incredibly powerful. Like, for instance, one of the things that happens is it creates immortal souls. People get created from sexual intimacy. All of you exist because of sexual intimacy and in the in in the place of marriage it is glorified and honored by god in powerful ways and any use of it outside of those covenantal bonds destroys people and cultures all around it's it is it, it's it, it at times it seems to me so self-evident as you read the word and then you look at the world around you that there isn't anything to there's no argument to be made it is it's self-evident so this is why we say in the, in the wedding, at the end, end of the wedding, you may now kiss the bride. It's like, why do we do that? Well, because we don't have the marriage tent just outside where, they, where the, the couple now goes for the next few hours while we all celebrate, which existed in some ancient communities. We just say, kiss, a kiss right now is fine. <laughs> right? But that's what we're saying. We're declaring, we're declaring that the sexual intimacy that you are going to go and enjoy now is blessed by God. It's wonderful. Go and enjoy your husband, your wife, for the rest of your life, we oftentimes say. While marriage involves a covenantal agreement to meet all your spouse's needs for companionship, a central need and a peculiar provision exists only in the marriage relationship, sexual enjoyment, and purity. And so Hebrews 13.4 tells us that in the marriage bed, in the marriage bed bound by covenant, so it's not a marriage bed unless it's Covenantally bound, sexual intimacy is honorable, and therefore, there is absolutely no shame. 1 Corinthians 7, 2, and 3 teaches us that sexual activity within the marriage is God's kind provision and practical help against sexual temptation. Husbands and wives must study one another in their, sp- in, in their spouse's particular needs as they seek to be a companion in this particular area. But the commitment here is the same—the vow to give, not the vow to receive, or the vow to only give if. And this is also why any kind of sexual, in any kind of sexual intimacy, any kind of sexual pursuit outside the vows of marriage, is so destructive, and and why you need to think as a person. For instance, if you're single, you need to think, okay, so why is porn use so destructive? Nobody even knows what's going on. We'll forget all the women that have been, um, ha- have been who knows what done to them in order to, to find themselves in front of a camera like that. Or, or, uh, or um, if if it's just me and my girlfriend over here and we're just fooling around or whatever, how's, how's that hurt and destroy um, society all? Well, I read you the long list. This is, this is where it all goes. It, it, it just destroys people and destroys culture. It's not that sex is bad. It's not that God doesn't, doesn't think sexual, sex and sexuality is a bad thing. It's that all of those things are just perversions of what sex, what, what the marriage bed is. It's a perversion of the marriage bed. Um, to, to say, we aren't, we, aren't to, we aren't to decide that the marriage bed or sexual intimacy is awful because look at all the perversion over here, any more than we're supposed to say that a crisp dollar bill is bad because look at all the counterfeits. Right? No, the, the real thing that God has created is glorious and good and to be protected with these vows of marriage, of companionship, of giving of oneself to the other unconditionally. And so, finally, the other, um, the other gift that comes through marriage is the gift of godly children, of offspring, for filling the earth, for passing on the blessing for generations, for building cultures, The chief end of marriage, and therefore your marriage, is to glorify God and enjoy him. Including, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place here. I jumped ahead. So, one of the main ways God intends to glorify his name through marriage is through bringing forth a filled earth full of generations upon generations of godly offspring. And I want to say that the giving of children is God's work. It's not raw biology at all. And the fact that there are those that God does not grant children to is the exception that proves the rule. He is the one who grants, if he desires it, of those to whom he grants it. God is in charge of bringing forth the godly offspring. His covenant with Abraham pointed to this. He says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. It's reiterated through Moses and Deuteronomy and passed on to all Christians in Ephesians 6, where fathers, uh, children are told to obey their parents and the Lord, that it may go well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Covenant blessings again in the family structure. Again, these families through generations are the building blocks of society and culture. And so the chief end of marriage, and therefore your marriage, is to glorify God and enjoy him, including his covenant blessings. Your marriage is not primarily about you. Your marriage is primarily about the conquering of the world through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the spreading of his kingdom. That's what your marriage is about. And the sooner that you act like it, the sooner that we act like it, the sooner that the church acts like it, dying to ourselves, the sooner that you enter into blessing and enjoyment, glorifying God. The covenant of marriage is a place where the deepest human needs and desires are met. But to enter in, one has to die to self through, thou, through vows before God and society, trusting in the living God who himself died in covenant faithfulness for his people And to the glory of His name, marriage is being redefined, is being uh, trampled all over. It is uh, being—it's—it has become almost impossible to define because people so desperately know, down in their heart, that they need it. They can't quite make sense of it all, but they know they need it. But they can't have it. They can't have it at least fully and completely unless they will acknowledge the one who made it, the one who instituted it, the one who governs and oversees it. Because the covenant of marriage, the the marriage is honorable, and God is the one who honors it. God is the one who is protecting it. God is the one who is very angry about how it has misused. And God is the one who is judging us because we have refused to believe and live according to the gospel promises that are given to us in marriage, and in the promise of marriage. So like I said, for all of us, God meets us right here where we are. I know I can't do a sermon on marriage and not have a handful, if not dozens of you out there feeling guilty or horrible or, or having lots of yeah-buts. So can I tell you instead to set those aside for a moment and believe with me a couple of things. Marriage is God's institution, and it's good Wherever we are, wherever you are, when we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his ways, he always makes it better. He always forgives sin to those who call upon him. He always leads us into light when we ask to be taken out of the darkness. And he always, he always brings his own companionship with you as he walks with you down the road of understanding and living out that marriage is honorable among all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God our Father, we have so messed up our world by walking away from what you give and teach us. Please bless your people. Please bless these people. Be merciful to us as we look to you to reform and renew our own marriages and our understanding of what marriage is and that these families would be the building blocks you use to build a faithful community and rightly proclaim the gospel of Jesus to a world desperate for you, even though they do not know it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.